to see you guys and uh, missed you all last week. Our family was away just for a couple days. And I have to say I did, our, our Wi-Fi was a little bit spotty where we were, but I was able to tune in for the beginning of the service and the beginning of what sounded like just a great word from, uh, from Pastor Jeff. And then we lost our Wi-Fi or internet or whatever we lost. And then I tried to tune in for what I thought would be the end of the service, only to find out you guys were long gone. It was like minimum day bell schedule. You guys probably had lunch and did your grocery shopping before noon and you were home. So, so all that to say, I've got some time coming back to me. To, no, we're not going to. It's a great text today. So I'm, not, I'm trying not to use it today. I'm going to bank it up. So listen, kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, elementary kids, you can head out with. You can head out with Pastor Chris, and he'll get you to where you belong. And then uh, youth group, so middle school and high school, if you want to head out with Pastor Chris, you can as well. Uh, you're welcome to stay in here if, uh, if you would like to. We have a great, great, great text to look at today. I have to apologize in advance. I just don't feel like I'm going to do this justice, but we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill in the gaps uh, to what I think is super important uh, that we're looking at today. So if you need a Bible, if, if you don't have a Bible, that means you need a Bible, and we have Bibles for you. You can use one on your phone, or you can raise your hand, and uh, somebody will bring you one that you can use either for today uh, or you can take one home. If you're looking on your phone, if you want to follow along, I'm teaching out of the New King James Version of the Bible, and so that might be helpful uh, to keep you where you're supposed to be. So let's pray and just ask that the Lord would bless uh, his word this morning. So, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for today, and we thank you, Lord, as Donjay said, just for this family that you've provided, Lord, and um, just the way that we uh, are knit together, Lord, our hearts knit together in you. And so we thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we share. Lord, we thank you for this place that you have provided in this time, Lord, that you set aside for us each week to be here together, Lord, and to minister one unto another, Lord, and most importantly, to minister to you through our worship, Lord, and then to be ministered to by you uh, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, by your word. So we pray that that would happen this morning, Lord. We pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord. We pray that you would be our teacher, Lord. Uh, just give us ears to hear what you would say to your church today, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 23. So it's that second half of the second chapter of Paul's letter to this little church there in Colossae. And we're watching together now as we move through this, um, as the Apostle Paul is starting to kind of actively address one by one these different false teachings which were being brought by these false teachers into this little church. And it was, uh, it was this little church, we've said, with a, with a big problem. It was what became known as the Colossian heresy. And it was kind of the, the germ form, if you will, the, the very first seeds of what would become later, as we get into the second and third centuries, it would become what would be known as Gnosticism. And at this point, the Colossian heresy was kind of this eclectic mixture of all these different kinds of ideas, which they were trying to sort of blend together and then add in and add on to the simplicity of the gospel. They would come in and they say, well, hey, Jesus is fine to get you started, right? But you need more than Jesus to really get you going and to really grow in the deep things of the faith. And they promised this secret knowledge and these secret teachings and this kind of enlightened approach to the faith. And last time we watched when we were in Colossians together, the first half of chapter two, as Paul really now kind of, he really sort of laid his ax to what was really at the root of all of these bad teachings. And that was the addition of human philosophies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you remember he said so clearly in verse eight last time, he said, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty 
deceit. Or remember we talked about you know, intellectualism and high-sounding nonsense. Right? All of those human-based ideas about man, about where we came from, and about why we're here, and about who we are, and why we are the way that we are. All of those notions that man puts forward that kind of fly in the face of what it is that Jesus said, right? what it is that the Bible teaches about those things. And we said that all of that kind of stuff, at best, is just man's ideas on the nature of the world and on the nature of God. But at worst, those things really are kind of fueled by these demonic forces that are seeking constantly to call into question and to just lead us away from the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus all by himself. That's redundant, right? The sufficiency of the Lord Jesus all by himself. Now, Paul had just told us that Jesus is really the pinnacle of all reality, right? That he's the Lord over all creation and the fact that he dwells in us. And you remember in verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul said that we are complete in him. Right, that our salvation is completely complete in Jesus Christ. And now Paul's really building on this truth because, of course, when something's completed, it can't really be improved upon. If something's completely perfect already and then we try to go and add to it, all we're going to do is mess it up, mar its perfection. And if we are complete in Christ, right, the salvation that we have in him and the life that we now have in him is complete, anything we try to add to that is simply going to foul it up. But that was precisely what was happening there in Colossae, and it's precisely what is still happening even to this day. People are always trying to add something on to Jesus. And what we as believers really need to be aware of these things. Because in today's text, as Paul continues on, we're going to make kind of a turn in the, in the root, if you will. Because he's going to turn from these philosophical and theological errors of all of these false teachers. Now to the real practical kinds of errors which those kinds of false teachings produce, what they do in the lives of believers. Paul turns from this warning about Gnosticism, right? Don't add human philosophy to Jesus, to this morning, a real warning to beware of legalism. Right? Don't add legalism to Jesus. Because remember, bad theology will always produce bad practice. If you detract from the person and the work or from the centrality and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, then you always need to make up for it with some sort of human solution, right? Some sort of human effort that adds to what Jesus did. And that, in its simplest form, is the definition of legalism. Now, legalism, it's not a word you'll find in the Bible, but it's a word which we use to describe uh, you know, someone's faith where there's an emphasis on a system of rules and of regulations, maybe just to be saved in the first place, but then certainly in how you grow in your faith, where you're always kind of working to adhere to this extra-biblical set of man-made rules in order somehow to to gain more of God's favor, to get him to, to love you more, to improve kind of where you are in your spiritual status. Now, legalism, of course, is a system that's inherently opposed to grace. And so the Apostle Paul, right, the Apostle of grace, fiercely does battle against this issue throughout so many of his letters to the churches. Because, the, again, the enemy was constantly trying to introduce this idea, right, of doing it on your own to pull people away from the freedom that's provided to us by the grace of God and to put them back in bondage to, to law and rights and rules and regulations. And so now, as we pick up in verse 11, what we're going to see is Paul address this very same issue with the Colossians. He's going to hit right at the heart of the issue 
right? He says, speaking of their faith in Jesus, look at verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2. He says that in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, if you've read much at all of the New Testament, whether in the book of Acts, the, the history of the early church, or in the letters that are written to the church, you know that this issue of circumcision was always central to this issue of legalism. And it was central, as we see here as well, to exactly what was happening there in Colossae. Because remember, the Colossian heresy, we said before, was this kind of a mixture of Greek philosophy and then this sort of a strange oriental mysticism all wrapped up with Jewish legalism. And so here you have these false teachers were coming in and they were claiming to this group of these Gentiles there in Colossae that they needed, now that they had become saved, that they now also had to become circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, circumcision in the Old Testament, if you were here with us for Joshua, you remember we dealt with it in detail back in chapter 5. But we remember it was simply a religious rite which God had given even before the law. He first gave it to Abraham, right? It was part of this covenant that he made with Abraham and then later with his descendants, the Jews, and it became the sign of the covenant, right? God gave this rite of circumcision to the Jews as a part of the law in Leviticus chapter 12 in order that as every male was circumcised, that what it would do is it would make the Jew distinctive in all the world. It would make a Jewish man different from everything else and from everyone else in the world. And of course, what the circumcision involved physically, right, was the cutting away of the flesh from the male child there on the eighth day. But God's intention was always that physical circumcision would reflect not only something that was done to them physically, but much more so it would be a reflection of something that had also been done spiritually, right? A spiritual kind of circumcision or the cutting away of the flesh from their hearts. And God had made this very clear to them all throughout, really, the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 4, speaks of it very specifically. The Lord declares through Jeremiah, he says to his people, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So it was this clear call to cut away the worldly ways that had crept into their lives and to turn their hearts back to God. And of course, God had given this physical right to speak to, again, something that was supposed to be happening spiritually, right? They were distinct. They were set apart unto the Lord. And what happens, as we see in the history of God's people, is that as time went on, they sort of missed the point, didn't they? They sort of started to think about the fact that what it was that made them distinctive as a people in the world was simply this physical act of the circumcision itself, right? They demanded that physical act in a very legalistic way to anyone that would follow. And God was saying, listen, this was a physical representation of a more important process that happens in your heart. And this is the same message that Paul's echoing here to the Colossians. But to them, he's saying, look, this is exactly what has already happened to you. He says, you don't need to add legalism to Jesus because you've already experienced this incredible spiritual transformation. Look there in the verse, he says, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, right? This spiritual circumcision, which Paul calls the circumcision of Christ. And just in the way that the, the flesh is cut away in a physical circumcision, in the same way, in our relationship with God, 
when we give him by our faith in Jesus Christ, we give God that freedom and we give God that ability really to cut away all of that extra flesh from our hearts, right? And it is simply this. It is this spiritual circumcision. This is what makes us as Christians different than anyone else in the world. It's this spiritual process by which the Holy Spirit now has come inside of our lives and he's actively working to cut away all of that extra fleshly encumbrances, if you will, that are on our hearts so that we're no longer living our lives now as Christians dominated by the flesh. We're not living our lives completely wrapped up in the flesh or surrounded by the flesh but we're living lives that are dominated and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point is that that is what really makes a Christian different. That's what makes us distinct. And that it does it in a way that's far superior to even that physical process of circumcision. To the Philippians, Paul said this, that he says, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And this, again, this is what hits at the heart of legalism itself as we rest simply in what Jesus did and not on anything that we could possibly, that our flesh could possibly add with our own efforts through any kind of a ceremony or a ritual or following a rule or some kind of regulation. And this is this foundational truth, you guys, for every one of us, because I'm telling you something. You take a child of God who believes that, who really truly believes that, and who rests in that, and who lives that, and you will have a person who is distinctive, even within religious environments, let alone what makes us truly distinctive in all the world, that we are resting in that finished work of Jesus Christ. And so right in this verse, this is the, the basis for our foundation in the battle against legalism, right? Paul says that this rite of circumcision, so to speak, has already happened, but it's happened on an even deeper level. And so now he continues saying that God already gave us yet another sign to show us that this has happened. Look what he writes in verse 12. He reminds us, not only have we experienced this spiritual circumcision of Jesus, but also that we were, look what it says, we were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, just as circumcision speaks of the partial cutting away of the flesh, baptism speaks even further of the complete death and the burial of that flesh. The complete death and burial of that person who we were prior to coming to faith in Christ. And so Paul's point from a theological or from a doctrinal perspective is not only did our old self Right? Not only did that old fleshly self die with Christ, it was crucified with him there on the cross, but we've also been buried with him. And that's precisely what baptism pictures for us. Baptism pictures something that took place at the moment of our conversion, but we're expressing it as we understand it in this kind of a, a beautiful public confession when we're baptized. Let me be clear, baptism doesn't save us. Baptism isn't the new circumcision for a Christian, but it's a picture of something, again, which is so much deeper because baptism is a burial. Right? Baptism is the burial of everything that we once were as children of Adam. Right? As we go down under the water, we're burying that old fleshly self. And with that, listen, with that, when we do that, what we're acknowledging is that there's nothing in that old, dead, fleshly self that could ever please God. So we're 
burying it, right? It's dead. We're acknowledging that. We're putting it to death. We're putting it out of God's sight and doing it forever. And notice, but Paul says that it doesn't end, of course, with the burial, because not only have we been crucified and buried with Christ, but we've also, what does he say? That we've risen with him through our faith in him, right? Now we've risen to walk in this new life. Again, this all happened the moment we were born again, but we express it as we understand it in our baptism. And what we're really saying is, look, I'm not trying to perfect that dead flesh. I'm just gonna bury it. And now I'm gonna live this new life, not in the power of that dead flesh, but by the grace of God. And I'm gonna live this whole new Christian life empowered by the spirit of God. So that's the beauty and that's the symbol of Christian baptism. And what is so ironic and terribly tragic is that people, right, legalistic people, have now taken this beautiful privilege of Christian baptism, which was meant to remind us that we're not trying to perfect the flesh because it's already been dead and buried, and they have turned baptism into this kind of a legalistic requirement and a work of the flesh. All throughout the church, people are debating and dividing about whether you were baptized or how you were baptized or in whose name were you baptized or let me see the papers to prove that you were baptized. Right? Religious people are insufferable. Now, should you be baptized? Absolutely yes. Right? Jesus himself gave us this beautiful ordinance to help us to understand that thing that has happened inside of us. Now, can you make it up to heaven without being baptized? Absolutely yes. Just ask the thief on the cross, right? Baptism wasn't meant to put us back under the law or some new version of Christian law, but instead it was meant to show that we're free from the law. And that's exactly what Paul powerfully explains next. Now he's about to kind of reach another peak in this argument against legalism. This, is, this part is great. He says in verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So that was all of us, right? Before we came to Christ. He says being dead in, the, in your trespass, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, and here's how he did it, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So what are the handwriting of requirements that was against us? It's the law. It's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments on which the entire Mosaic law was based. Remember in Exodus 31, it says that when God had made an end to speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So these are the handwriting of requirements. And notice what Paul says about the law, he says that it was against us, that it condemns us. And that was the point and the purpose of the law, wasn't it? It was simply to reveal to us that we couldn't, in and of ourselves, possibly live up to it. That's why Paul said to the Galatians that the law was our tutor, right, or our schoolmaster, our teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law sets the standard of what it is that God demands, right? A very clear standard of what's right and what's wrong in God's eyes. And of course, we live in a world today where right and wrong more so are defined by opinion polls, aren't, isn't it? Right? Whatever the majority thinks is right is somehow right. But the truth is, God's already told us what's right and what's wrong according to his standard. And the problem is that none of us can possibly live up to it. 
right? So he's given us the law, which acts as a teacher for us, right? And what the law is supposed to do, and all that it was ever supposed to do, is to show us how far short we fall. And boy, does it do that. Right? It comes to each and every person before we know the Lord and that standard of the law, right? Thou shalt not this and thou shalt not that and thou shalt not the other. And that standard there and you lay that thing out and what it does is it exposes me as a sinner. And sometimes you'll hear people say stuff like, well, you know, I'm going to go to heaven because I pretty much keep the Ten Commandments. And you say, okay, well, let's just turn to Exodus and let's read through those again and let's see how well you're actually doing at that. Because the, the fact is, nobody can keep even the Ten Commandments, let alone the 613 commandments that make up all of the Mosaic Law. No one can do it except for who? When I ask a question in church, the answer is usually Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who did it. And he did it and he kept the law and he did it on our behalf. He lived this perfect, sinless life on our behalf to live up to the law because he knew that we couldn't do it. The entire Sermon on the Mount, right, is Jesus fully fleshing out what the heart of the law really was. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He said, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And this is the idea behind this beautiful picture that Paul is painting here with this nailing of those requirements on the cross. Because in ancient times, when a debt was fully satisfied, right? When a person had paid off everything he owed to another individual, they would go and post a public notice of that on a, they would nail it to a wall in a public place, like out in the, in the city square somewhere. And it was a way to show so that everyone could see that this specific debt had been paid in full. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He fully paid the debt that we each owed and that we couldn't pay, that crushing debt that we all owed, and Jesus nailed it to the cross as he absorbed all of our deep debt, and of course he did it at such a tremendous personal expense to himself. And he has made it publicly known to everyone that any person that puts their faith in me doesn't owe me anything. They are completely forgiven, their debt is erased, and that very law which would have convicted them has been fulfilled. All of those crimes against that law that they have committed, even in their hearts, Jesus says, I have paid the penalty for those things, which is yet another powerful picture that Paul is alluding to here. Because we remember that when a person was crucified by the Romans, they would take and they would write out a description of the crimes that they, were, that they had committed and that they were being crucified for. And what would they do with that sign? They would nail it to the cross above their heads. Right? Now, remember in Matthew 23, of course, Pilate wrote out the crimes that Jesus was responsible for. And he wrote it out, it says, in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. And it was supposed to be hung up above the head of Jesus. And it said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Because, of course, their only claim against Jesus was that he made himself a king so that somehow he was disloyal to Caesar. That was the crime that they wrote on that inscription and they hung it above Jesus' head. But, of course, as God looked down on, from heaven upon the cross, what he saw was a completely different inscription altogether. What God saw as he looked down on that sign, he saw this handwriting of the Ten Commandments that were given at Mount Sinai. He saw all of the 613 commandments that fully expressed 
his holy standard. And it was because his holy law had been broken at every point, that's why Jesus had to pour out his blood. That's why he gave his life to redeem us from the curse that was demanded of that law. So all of our sins have been settled because in the cross, Jesus fulfilled the, he magnified that beautiful law to the full. And that's why Jesus, that's why Paul says at the end of uh, Romans chapter 10, he says that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's no more trying to fulfill the law because by his death, Jesus met every claim that was against us. He fully canceled the debt we couldn't pay. All of the crimes that we have committed against a holy God in the past, in the present, and in the future, Paul says, were nailed there to the cross to die there with Jesus instead of us. Amen is right. right? All of that guilt, all of that shame, Paul says, was nailed to the cross. And this is why Paul says next that through his death on this cross, you don't want to miss this part, right? But wait, there's more, right? Because through his death on this cross, Paul says that Jesus also, says in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, what that verse means to us, that's good news. Because it means that through the cross, Jesus has taken away all of the power that our enemy, the devil, right, and all of his demonic principalities and powers, all that power that he once held over us to accuse us and condemn us has been completely taken away from him. This is the, the paradox of the cross. Because what seemed like Satan's greatest victory in crucifying the Son of God in fact, was his ultimate defeat. And he can never recover from it because he has now been publicly exposed as a liar and he's been stripped of a couple of his most valuable weapons that he uses against us. And those are the weapons of condemnation and fear. And here's the beautiful connection here with legalism and the law is that Jesus took away Satan's power to hold us in bondage to condemnation and fear because the law was the leverage that all of those demonic forces will still use to try to, to hold over us and to keep us paralyzed and discouraged. Satan will keep holding our failure to live up to the standard. He'll always keep holding that over our heads. Right? He accuses and he reminds us each and every day, doesn't he, how short we continue to fall from God's holiness. But when we realize, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, that our need to live up to the law has been nailed to the cross and that all of our sins for violating that law have been washed away by the blood of the Son, then the enemy has no leverage on us anymore. Amen? Amen to that. We don't need to add legalism to Jesus because we've already experienced this spiritual transformation and we are free from guilt and from condemnation. And once the reality of God's grace through the cross is really grasped by each one of us as believers, then the powers of darkness over our lives are rendered powerless. Jesus has triumphed, Paul says, over all of them on our behalf, and he's made it perfectly clear publicly. Uh, again, embedded in this verse is a beautiful picture that Paul draws on from a, a current kind of a custom there from the first century. When a Roman general conquered an enemy out on foreign soil, right, and they took captives and loot and they, they gained new territory for Rome, that Roman general would return back to Rome and be honored by this official parade called the Roman Triumph. And what would happen is that that Roman general would ride in the head chariot. Of course, all of his soldiers would follow. And after them 
would come all of the conquered warriors who were chained and very often dragged naked, right? Powerless, defeated, disgraced, put there on public display in front of all these crowds who were lining the streets, looking on, cheering for their victorious returning commander. And so the next time that the enemy tries to whisper in your ear about your failure and about your need to just try harder or to rely on some sort of a legalistic method to live up to some standard, when the enemy says, you know, you're not doing enough. You need to be working harder. You need to be trying harder. You need to be doing better. You are exhausting the limits of God's grace. The next time you hear that voice, I want you to picture this picture of this parade. And I want you to remember that all of those principalities and those powers, all of those demonic forces that Satan will try to use to trip you up, that they are in reality as powerless as a troop of chained, naked, conquered soldiers. So Paul says, don't let them freak you out and don't let them drag you down. Don't let them lure you back into all of this kind of legalistic self-effort. Don't let them keep you living in this fear and condemnation, he says, because you have been delivered from all of that. And then in verse 16, he says, so... Right, here's where Paul now turns from this kind of theological foundation against legalism to now this very practical outworking of a life lived without legalism. And Paul's now going to drill down on some of these specific issues that these specific false teachers were specifically falsely teaching. Right? So he says, so, right, because we're free from trying to improve the flesh, because we're not subject to the law, because Jesus paid the price, because he nailed it to his cross, because of all of that, Paul says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He says, look, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you, when, you know, when you worship, when you don't worship, Paul very clearly says none of that matters. He says because all of these things, all of these different things that they're trying to bring back in from the law, they were only ever there to point you to Jesus. They were never intended to be added on to Jesus. Right? Because of this glorious victory that Jesus won on the cross, we're to be focused on him and him alone. So rather than adding legalism to Jesus, what we need to do is simply focus on our relationship with Jesus. Because a life lived that's centered on Jesus alone and what he alone did on the cross, that life has no place for these kinds of legalistic rules. Now, we know that the Old Testament law had all kinds of provisions about certain foods that were forbidden. They had a requirement for a Sabbath and different other holy days when worship was required. But now all of those things are done away with in Jesus Christ. And it isn't that those things were bad, but it's simply that they were the shadow of things to come. We've talked about the fact that each one of those sacrifices, each one of those ceremonies, in some way somehow pointed to the Lord Jesus and this coming work that he would accomplish on the cross on our behalf. And Paul says, look, now that that's all happened, Right Now that the, that real substance of the shadow has arrived, now that Jesus is here, Paul says we don't need to operate in the shadows anymore. We don't need to be worried about food or drink or, or Sabbaths. Now, I want to make this clear as delicately as I can say it. Okay, Christians are free to keep a kind of a kosher diet, or a vegetarian diet, they are perfectly free to observe the Sabbath day if they please. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what we as Christians can't do is to think or to teach that eating one way or observing the Sabbath day 
makes us any closer to God than someone who doesn't do those things. And we also can't judge any other brother or sister who's not doing those things. We can't set up these artificial kinds of legalistic hoops and then make people try to jump through them to try to earn more favor with God. For centuries, Roman Catholics weren't supposed to eat meat on Fridays, and many still don't. Right? There are many churches that require abstinence from certain foods during Lent. Right? Of course, the Mormons say that a person can't be a good standing, a member in good standing if they drink drinks with caffeine or if they don't wear the appropriate holy undergarments or if they don't go on a year-long missions trip. And here I'm going to try to be especially careful lest we find ourselves meeting in a field next week. But the Seventh-day Advent... Do we turn the tape off maybe for that? No. The Seventh-day Adventists who own this building and are our very gracious hosts, but they have built an entire belief system on the idea of the Sabbath and the requirement to keep the Sabbath which is why they meet on Saturday, which leaves this beautiful building available for us to use on Sundays. Amen? Amen? But they have these other dietary rules and these other things and these rules and regulations and prohibitions and, and provisions that they add into that that they believe are so very important for them to observe as a part of their ceremonial religious duty. And I will say, Paul is not condemning those things but he is condemning the possibility of using those things to in any way measure our degree of spirituality because that's legalism. There are plenty of denominations even within our own you know, evangelical Christianity. There are those who believe that to really be spiritual, you absolutely have to avoid smoking, you have to avoid alcohol, you have to avoid dancing, movies, makeup, right? You know, I don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do or whatever the expression is. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but on makeup, Pastor Chuck Smith always used to say, ladies, you know what I'm going to say? If the barn needs painting, paint it. I'm just going to leave that. I'm going to leave it there. I don't have an opinion on it. The only opinion I have, makeup is okay for women, maybe not so much for men. That's my opinion. But we set up these things, right? And they say, in order to be spiritual, you have to avoid all these things. And that's fine. But the truth is that simply by avoiding all of these things, you know, it, some of these things to avoid them may not be a bad idea, right? As we try to grow in our holiness to stay away from those things, if those are problem areas for you. But the point is that simply avoiding those things is no guarantee of real spirituality, right? Reread Romans 14 when you get home all about our liberty in Jesus Christ, where Paul says, look, eat only vegetables if you want, or worship on whatever day you want, but whatever you do, do it unto the Lord, and don't judge someone else who isn't doing things exactly the way you're doing it. Because here's the truth, you guys. Our flesh just loves legalism, right? We love regulations about food. We love fasting. We love different spiritual disciplines. We love special religions, religious observances. Religious people love them because they really make us sort of feel like we're more spiritual, don't they? They give us this kind of a scale that we can sort of think we're measuring our spiritual life. And really, they give us something that we can be puffed up over when we accomplish it. Even sometimes to boast about it. They can give us this appearance of this outward, this super spirituality, but the truth is that not one of those things can actually change our sinful hearts. Only Jesus can actually do that. And so the great danger of legalism is that it draws our focus off of the relationship that we're supposed to have with him, and it places our focus onto the rules and onto these regulations, and it produces this kind of an artificial godliness, which then, as we're going to see next, leads into all kinds of other sort of strange practices. 
This is precisely what was happening in Colossae. So Paul's going to pick up now in verse 18 and 19. He's going to move from this legalism based on all these do's and don'ts. Now he's going to talk about being drawn into these other sort of extra biblical activities that legalism very often leads us into. And they're all things that are going to pull us even further and further away from our relationship with the Lord. In verse 18, he says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So this artificial godliness that was being produced by this legalism was also connected with this very strange sort of a super spiritual kind of an oriental mysticism. Remember these false teachers were claiming to have had these special spiritual visions with these special revelations of this special truth, right? Teaching that a person could have this really connecting kind of an experience with the spiritual realm completely apart from the Holy Spirit of God and completely apart from what the Word of God directed. And they had created this elaborate system of angel worship. All these different levels of these, what they said were sort of these spiritual emanations that came out from God. And they had set up this sort of an artificial hierarchy, almost like a ladder, if you will, that a person needed to climb up in order to seek the Lord. And the whole point was, look, you know, wait a second, you know, who are you to think you can have a relationship with God? Who are you to think that you can just come to God and talk to him anytime you want to and consider him to be a friend and a father? You know, God is way too big for that. God is way too holy for that. He's too majestic for that. What you need to do is you need to lower your sights a little bit. You can have a relationship with God, but maybe you need to do it through one of these angels. It's a pretty high created being, but that will help to get you there. And so people would get this kind of a false sense of humility and they'd start to think all of a sudden, okay, you know what? Yeah, I'm not worthy. Who do I think I am? Who do I think that I am to talk with God and walk with God and that he would care about me and that any minute of my day I could talk to him and have this intimacy and who am I to think that he would listen to me and that he loves me? You're right. I must be out of my mind. So, okay, which angel should I worship? Which saint should I be praying to? Which of these saints will intercede on my behalf? Maybe the Blessed Mother would hear my prayers. And maybe she'll go to her son and ask a favor on my behalf. She'll plead my case, and maybe the son will grant my request because of his love for his mother. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because very sadly, it is the bedrock of what so much of Roman Catholic teaching is based on. It sounds very humble, but Paul says it's a false humility, and he says that it's based on the puffed-up imaginations of the fleshly mind. Because as plainly as we can say it, trying to reach God the Father through anyone or through anything other than his son, Jesus Christ, that is nothing less than idolatry. It's idolatry. It's man's system of trying to approach God in a way that we have developed on our own terms. And the great danger in all of this, look at what Paul says. He says that it cheats the believer. Look at the beginning of that verse. He says it cheats us as believers out of our real reward. Now, what's our real reward as Christians? It's a personal relationship and an intimate connection with God himself. God has provided this way for us to be in relationship with him directly and intimately. And so for us to let anything 
or any one or any church come between us and the Lord, whether it's angelic beings or dead saints or whether it's the blessed Mother Mary himself, herself, that is not humility, it's an affront to the cross. It's an affront to the incredible price that Jesus paid so that he could be directly and intimately connected with us. So we need to, to focus on relationship with Jesus and we need to stay connected directly to Jesus. Just think for a minute, can you imagine how any of this plays in heaven? This whole system with its saints and its intercessors, it misrepresents the very heart of God. The fact that Jesus went to the cross and he died for us. I mean, what else can he possibly do to communicate that he is for us and that he loves us and that he wants to be connected to us in a real and an intimate relationship with us. He doesn't want to be distant from us or separated from us by a series of these mediators. I will say this, if there could be grieving in heaven, I believe that Mary would be grieving that she has been elevated to this place where she doesn't belong taking the place of Jesus himself. It's an affront and it paints God as this distant, untouchable being that he simply is not. And so Paul in essence says, knock it off. He says, don't think you're being super spiritual. He says, going in that direction is a false humility. A true humility is simply to worship God the way that he is made available to us and the way that the Bible lays out for us because not only does doing anything else dishonor the head right it dishonors Jesus but notice Paul says there that it also cuts off any real spiritual growth which flows directly from the head down through the body and so Paul brings up this imagery of the body right the human body as compared to the body of Christ where Christ is the head and we are the body of Christ and when we start to worship angels or to worship saints or any other thing or when we have substituted this list of rules and this list of regulations in place of a real relationship what have we done we've moved away from the head right we have severed our relationship with the head and and how healthy or how successful is a body possibly going to be that moves away from being connected to the head right ask Anne Boleyn right ask some of the wives of Henry VIII it usually doesn't work out very well and so what we have in this kind of a structured legalistic kind of a system of religion is what we end up with is a bunch of desperate believers who are connected not to Jesus, but they're connected to a system. A demonically inspired system, which is by design, keeping them disconnected and severely malnourished and not growing. Here's God's plan for our spiritual growth. We remain faithful. We stay connected to Jesus, our head, and God will give the increase. Or to use that other beautiful image, stay connected directly to the vine and we let his life simply flow out into us. But once again, there's such a fascination with all of these religious things, right? With religious mysticism and religious uh, legalism that is so attractive to our flesh because we love structure and we love rules. We want to paint by the numbers, but what Jesus wants is relationship, and he wants connection with us. If you're visiting today, God bless you. We're so glad that you're here. Heavy day, right? Verse 20 says this, and we're almost done. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, then why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So here Paul's starting to wrap things up and what's he doing? He's taking us right back to this beautiful picture of our baptism. And again, he's showing us how pointless it is 
that we're trying to improve ourselves spiritually when we're trying to adhere to some legalistic set of rules physically. Here's the key, you guys, to living above legalism. It's remembering what he says here, that we have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Now, what are the basic principles of the world? Well, it's these commandments and these man-made doctrines about how we can improve ourselves by improving our flesh. In essence, the basic principle of the world, right, the principle on which the whole world operates, it's self-righteousness. It's this principle that God is somehow going to accept us based on our works. And I love the way that Charles Spurgeon said it. He said that the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And Paul is simply reminding us here that we died to all of that. He says we gave all of that up when we came to know the Lord. We gave up trying to improve the flesh and now we're simply to count it as dead. We're to count it as already buried and we're instead to focus on our connection to Jesus and that life that is flowing from him to us, right? So don't add legalism to Jesus but focus on relationship with Jesus, stay connected directly to Jesus, and then just simply live and walk in the power of Jesus. There is such an incredible freedom in that, isn't there? And yet here come all their, these teachers with all of their don'ts, right? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. And it's this kind of a Christian asceticism that flows right out of this religious legalism where we somehow start to measure our success as a Christian based on all the things that we're not doing. All of a sudden, there's this list of what is spiritual and what's not spiritual, and all these things start to really kind of get defined within the church of what's okay and what's not okay. And when that happens, what's happening is that we are starting to fall back under self-righteousness. We're coming right back under all of those man-made rules and we become so focused on that. And what happens in the church and in our lives is we become then the most self-consumed person in the whole world. Right? That's what legalism really does. Where pretty soon I've got this relationship with these rules that I'm keeping. Right? And then I'm noticing who else is not keeping all of the same rules that I'm keeping. And then all of a sudden, it's all about how spiritual I am and how unspiritual they must be. And then finally, what happens is that I lose complete contact with the reality that God is desperately trying to reach this entire world with the gospel, and he wanted to use me to do it, but he can't because I am so completely wrapped up in this teeny tiny little religious context of the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. Instead of being focused on people, which is where he wants my focus to be. I'm focused on how everybody else is measuring up to my standard. That's what legalism does to us. It produces this self-consumed person instead of a Christ-consumed, gospel-centered kind of a person. It produces a Christian who's not growing because legalism itself is a bankrupt system. Look what he says in our last verse for today. He says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He says, look, all these things may look like they're working, but they're not. Right? Any of the, this person who's practicing this religious legalism or this religious mysticism or this religious asceticism with all of their strict adherence to all of this, all of their rules and their self-righteousness, Paul says all of that might look good, but it's useless because none of it can conquer your flesh. The only thing that can conquer your flesh is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
He didn't say walk in this list of rules and regulations and make sure that you're circumcised and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He said walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's why in writing to the Romans, he relates his own very personal struggle in this very area. You know, the end of chapter 7, you guys all know the text where he's talking about that struggle between his mind and his flesh, his desire to keep growing. And he says, look, I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not want, uh, for I, for, pardon me, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Anybody relate to that? I hope so. Then he says, In verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my flesh, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. So we have this struggle, right? Some people have likened Romans chapter 7 as the uh, the I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, kind of little engine that could kind of a chapter that sort of sums up our Christian life. Like, look, I'm just going to try as hard as I can to live out this Christian life on this legalistic kind of a rules-based kind of an effort kind of a way. But then Paul goes on at the end of the chapter, you guys know the text, in verse 24, he cries out. Finally, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who can save me from this cycle that I am in? And then what happens, again, it's no accident, is it, that chapter 8 begins right then to start to speak of this life lived in the power of the Spirit who delivers us from all of this struggle, because this is where Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So all this stuff, right, all of this legalistic life, it might look spiritual, right? That person might look like they have it all together with all of these rules and self-denial and all of this man-made stuff. And frankly, that's why it sells. That's why we're so attracted to it. But the truth is it has no power to change a human life. God knew what he was doing when he said, look, I'm going to establish a relationship with man. And I'm going to change this person because I know that they want to be changed. But I'm going to do it from the inside out. Right? Not from the outside in, because it will never work that way. So God's Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and he's the one who gives us, like Paul says, that it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Right? First he gives us the desire, he gives us the will, then he gives us the power to do what it is that he wants us to do, to live a life that's pleasing to him. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not keeping a bunch of man-made rules to prove to God that I love him. That kind of thing is not at all in the gospel message, and it is not at all why Jesus died. And God has no interest in us wasting our life on all of that. The, The message of the gospel is loving him. And letting him simply live through us. Why? Because Paul said he's already dwelling in us. We're already complete in him. And all we need to do now is to allow what's already happened on the inside simply work its way by the power of the Spirit to the outside. And that just takes time. And I know, because I've talked to so many of you, I know that the Christian life can be frustrating at times because we're not making the kind of progress that we think that we ought to be making or that we want to be making. And we're kind of stuck in this Romans 7 kind of a place. And the allure of a legalistic approach, I know that it's very alluring. Because we think, you know, maybe this will work. Maybe these rules are going to help me. But listen, it's such a dangerous trap as we start to focus on our connection to, you know, that that connection and that relationship with Jesus Christ becomes replaced by a relationship that we have with these rules. And we find ourselves dry and spiritually starving. It's no way to live. 
as we close, you guys probably all have heard this illustration before, but it's the one about the two wolves, right, that are living inside each one of us. And of course, there's the spiritual wolf and there's the fleshly wolf, and they are in this fight for control over our lives, right? There's that old fallen fleshly wolf of evil with its anger and envy and jealousy and sorrow and regret and greed and arrogance and self-pity and guilt and resentment, inferiority, lies and false pride and any other thing, right? All of this self-focused stuff. And that wolf is in a constant battle to overcome this new spiritual wolf that represents everything good, right? That represents love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness gentleness and self-control and so the question of course is which one of these wolves is ultimately going to win and the answer is that it's the one that we feed the most whichever wolf we feed the most that's the wolf which will ultimately win which is to say that we don't need to spend our time fighting the flesh what we need to do is spend our time feeding the spirit. We need to engage in those things which build us up in the Lord, right? Reading the word, listening to the word, time in prayer, right? Going to lunch at Panera with the church body right after church today <laughs> is another one of these things that will help to build you up. Right? We want to occupy ourselves with these things that are going to nurture us in our spirit and don't get caught up trying to fight off that old fleshly wolf because that's what leads to legalism. Don't do this. Don't do that. Right? I think I can. I think I can. Whoops, I guess I really couldn't. Right? I was wrong. Let the life of the Lord Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, let it just flow through you and then live your life not in the shadows of these religious rules and this legalism, but live your life instead in the light of God's amazing, amazing, amazing grace. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for, Lord, just such an encouraging text, Lord, and we pray by the power of your spirit, Lord, that he would help to sort all of this out in our hearts, Lord. Help it to find a place to root and to grow in us, Lord. And I, I pray again, Lord, that where my words have fallen so short, I pray that your spirit would truly fill in all of the gaps, Lord. Give us understanding of what it is that you want to communicate to us, Lord, and the freedom that you want us to live in and just enjoy in your grace. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Lord, and we do it in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.